Well, good morning. This fall, as a church, we have been reading Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia. We have this letter in our scriptures from Paul, who wrote to these women and men whom Paul deeply loved and was concerned about. After Paul had left the church, he found it in Galatia. Some others had come in to tell these believers that they had done a good job at starting to follow Jesus, but they still had some work to do. These believers in Galatia were told that if they truly wanted to be accepted and right with God, they had to not only believe in Jesus, but they had to follow some of the laws of Moses. Paul was really concerned that these believers were deserting the good news of the gospel and the freedom that they had in Christ. So he wrote this letter to these churches in Galatia. And we're going to continue to look at this intense letter from Paul today. But before we do, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the word that we have before us now. We thank you for your spirit that can use this word to encourage us, to challenge us, to convict us, to remind us of things, and to point us, hopefully, to you. Father, each person in this room comes here with various struggles and baggage. Each person in this room comes with various doubts and questions. Each person in this room comes with our own perspective on life and on you. And Father, we ask that you would reach each one of us where we are, through your word and through your spirit. In your name, amen. The Lord of the Rings, the Shawshank Redemption, the Chronicles of Narnia, the Matrix, you 2 lyrics, and Les Miserables have something in common, I think. They should stop being used in sermon illustrations. <laughs> Maybe it's just me, but I think I've heard all of these in sermons in my life, and I will admit I have probably used all of these more than once in sermons in my life. A good illustration loses its power when it is said over and over again. The power of trying to illustrate a point is lessened if it is used too much. I share this with you because in some sense I feel like every week when we get to this letter that Paul is talking about, he seems to be repeating himself. Every week it seems like Paul is talking about circumcision and freedom. Every week it seems like Paul is talking about adding to the gospel and the danger that that brings to followers of Jesus. And so maybe Paul's point is losing its power to us because we keep hearing him repeat himself. Maybe all this talk about freedom is causing us to glaze over and not see its significance. Maybe if we're honest, we kind of want Paul to stop talking about the same thing over and over and over again. But here's the thing. Paul needs to keep bringing up this point because the people in Galatia and you and me continue to forget the message that he is giving us. Paul repeats himself because the false message of how we get accepted by God and what God calls us to do as his followers spreads quickly and causes great damage. So yes, we are again going to talk about circumcision and freedom today. But hopefully we will see this repeated message is not just about the freedom we have in Christ, but the truth that we can live in this freedom today. 
So I'm going to read for us from Galatians 5, 1 through 15. You can follow along in your Bible or in your order of worship, or you can just listen as I read. Galatians 5, beginning in verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that you are obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted? In the case of that offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You should love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. This is God's word and it is given to us for our good. There's a lot to say about this passage. There's a lot of passion and concerns and warnings given by Paul to these false teachers about the dangerous errors that they are promoting. There's also some irony in this passage, I believe. For example, here Paul is talking about circumcision, and yet in verse 4 what he says is he uses a term to be cut off or severed from Christ if you're trying to keep the law seems like he's using irony to prove his point. And as well, he not only shows his frustration with these false teachers when he talks about them emasculating themselves or castrating themselves in verse 12, but there seems to be a little irony in Paul trying to push these false teachers to realize the damage that they are doing, not only to individuals, but as well to the body, the body of Christ, the church. So, related to irony, I figure I would start off this sermon by talking about the very illustration, one of the illustrations I made fun of earlier on. The musical Les Miserables is one of my favorite musicals of all time, and yes, I am going to use it in a sermon illustration. You might know this musical. The first number introduces two of the main characters. Jean Valjean is a prisoner at the time who learns about redemption and grace and mercy throughout the story. And then there's Javert a police inspector who is all about the law. In the opening number, Valjean uh, is talking or is being talked to. And he's, he's, Javert has not even used his name, but instead uses his prisoner number, 24601. And he tells Jean Valjean, your time is up and your parole has begun. Do you know what this means? And Valjean says, yes, it means I'm free. And Javert says, no, you are never free unless you learn the meaning of the law. You are not free unless you learn and know and keep 
the law. This is the very thing that Paul has been spending a considerable amount of time in this letter fighting against. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Free from a pagan past and free from having to keep the law for God's acceptance. Because here's the reality of the situation. If freedom comes from knowing the meaning of the law, then what we are saying is Christ is not enough. If freedom comes by works of the law, then the work of Jesus on the cross was not enough. These believers in verse 7, Paul says, were running so well. They were running and living and believing the truth of the gospel. And now in this passage, these are the words that he describes these same people as. They are now hindered. They are troubled. They are unsettled. So Paul strongly calls them to stand firm in freedom. To stand in the hope of freedom. All that Paul has argued for and exhorted previously in this letter comes to focus here in our section today. So let's walk through this section together about our freedom. Our passage today begins with these great words, For freedom Christ has set us free. So we are to stand firm and not submit to the yoke of slavery. Paul is teaching us here not just theologically, but practically in this section what freedom amounts to in the Christian life and how it should be used by you and I. Our first call is to stand firm or to hold fast to our freedom. We are called to be alert. We are called to be strong. We are called to resist the attack to the freedom we have in Christ. Why? Why must we stand firm in our freedom? Because we can so easily be trapped into the yoke of slavery. A yoke refers to the wooden cross piece that is used to control animals, usually attached to a plow or a cart that they are pulling. Paul uses this imagery to describe being trapped and held captive by something. Paul is afraid that these believers are being trapped into thinking that they had to win their acceptance with God by their obedience. Specifically, we see in the next few verses that Paul once again describes circumcision as the yoke of slavery. Now, maybe circumcision seems like a trivial matter in some sense. I mean, circumcision is just a minor surgical operation of the body. But for these false teachers, circumcision is not just a physical operation, nor is it just a ceremonial rite. It actually has become a theological symbol. These false teachers were, in a sense, saying that Moses and the laws he gave must be allowed to finish what Christ had begun. And this is absolutely false. Christians are set apart by faith in the cross of Christ, not in anything else. The freedom that is ours in Christ and his cross is received by faith, not through faith plus something else. To add something like circumcision is to lose Christ. What Paul says here and elsewhere in his letters is that we have freedom from rules and from commandments and from traditions that we are told or we believe we need to follow in order to get right with God. Ultimately, the Galatians faced an either-or decision. Will they make Christ their treasure, their hope, their freedom? 
or will they find something else to cling to? Now, it is safe to say that none of us in this room think circumcision is what is required of us and others to be right with God. But that doesn't mean we don't at times add to the gospel of Christ. We might believe that a follower of Jesus is one who accepts the work of Jesus on the cross, but we act like other things are needed as well. We are quick to judge others who don't value the same things we value. We are quick to judge others who don't believe the same theology we believe. We are quick to judge others who don't practice in their church and in their faith the same way that we do. For some of us, a a true believer is one who believes in Christ and votes a certain way. For some of us, a believer in Jesus is one who believes in Jesus and promotes a certain value or thing. For some of us, a true Christian is one who believes in Jesus and believes what I believe, what you believe. We could find ourselves under the yoke of slavery when we sense the pride creeping in where we think we are better than others. We find ourselves under the yoke of slavery when we refuse to listen and love others who disagree with us. And we find the yoke of slavery creeping into our lives when we seek our worth in something other than Jesus. We might never say that our job or our resume or our finances or our grades are what give us our worth. But how often do we live like that is the truth for our day-to-day lives? We might never say that our intellect or our recognition from others is what gives us our worth, but man, so many of us are consumed by how people view us. Many of us live like we have not done enough to be loved, to be accepted, to be free. Many of us live like who we are in Christ is not enough. Many of us live under the yoke of slavery. There was an article this morning in the Chicago Tribune about striving for perfection. In a sense, this article was describing the yoke of slavery, of perfectionism. It was talking mostly about millennials, but I think it relates to many of us in different age brackets we are in. Our culture does seem to promote an irrational desire to achieve. And at the same time, it promotes us being bitterly, overly critical of ourselves and others. And this naturally leads to anxiety and depression for many. And I'm sure I don't need to tell you this, but social media doesn't help at all. The comparison pressure that we place upon ourselves and others and what we post and how we portray ourselves online is so damaging to many of us in this room. One of the quotes in the article that really struck me was this. It, talking about the drive for perfection, causes suffering. And it causes people to kind of be isolated. And it causes people to detach from their work, from their school, from other people. And these are the perfect nutrients for anxiety to grow. Whether it's perfection, whether it's comparison, so many of us place our value and worth in unhealthy things. 
So many of us fail constantly at the standards we have set for ourselves or others have set for us. And so what do we do? We detach ourselves from others. We hide from others. We resent others. So what do we do? How do we not live this way? How do you and I fight against the feeling that we are a failure? That we are not enough? Well, one way to fight against this is to believe what Paul says in the very next verse. In verse 5, Paul says, Through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. How do we stand in freedom and fight against the slavery of perfectionism? We wait for hope of righteousness. How do we stand and fight against comparison and thinking we're not enough? We wait for the hope of righteousness. How do we fight against that voice in our head that says, you are a failure, you are worthless, you are unloved? We wait for the hope of righteousness. We wait for when God will publicly and completely, to those of us in Christ, are going to be declared right. We wait for the promise of righteousness, the complete right record and right relationship with God our Father. And listen, we do not work for this. We wait for it. We do not strive to be right with God. We eagerly wait for it. The certainty of our future with God is a fruit of the gospel. It is not something we earn. It is something given to us. And what is even more amazing to believe is those of us in this room who are followers of Jesus today, already in Christ, we are righteous before God. We are already his daughters and sons. We are already seen as right and beautiful by God right now. Even in your sin, even in your failings, even in the things you did wrong this weekend and you know you did wrong, God looks at you and says, you are mine I love you, and you are righteous. You know, we are as loved and as honored by God right now as we will be when we are with him in all eternity. If only we can believe this to be true. If only we believed that God sees us as right and good because of his son, how much would that affect our day-to-day lives? And, you know, I'm thankful that God gives us something powerful to help us believe this today. We need to grow in faith to believe this. But listen, in and of ourselves, we fail at believing this over and over and over again. If it was up to us to believe that we are right with God, not based on what we do, but on what he's done, we don't believe it. And we live like it's not true. But remember what verse 5 said. For through the Spirit, by faith we wait. Through God's Holy Spirit that he promises and he gives to anyone who believes in Jesus, that is by faith how we wait. Through God's Spirit, we are able to wait for the hope of righteousness. Pastor Aaron is going to talk about what it means to live by the Spirit next week. And that God does not leave us alone, but gives us his Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit to help us live for him. The more we believe this and let the Spirit by faith point us to who we are in Christ and what he gives us, the more we will live in the freedom that he provides for us. This hope of righteousness, 
Our justification that we are declared right. Our adoption that we are daughters and sons of our God. The promise of glorification that this world is not the end of the story. We must believe. We must grab hold of. We must celebrate. And the more we believe this, the more we grab hold of this truth and cling to it, the more it will lead us to ask, how am I to respond to this freedom that God has given us in Christ? The more we believe the glorification and promised hope of righteousness, the more we will know how to respond in our day-to-day lives. And Paul tells us how to respond in the next verse. He says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for everything. Do you know what counts? But only faith working through love. The more joy that we have in our gracious salvation and freedom in Christ, the more we will respond in faith, working through love. The more that we see who we are in Christ and what he has given us, the more we will love God and love others as a response. And here's the thing, brothers and sisters. We do not need to love in hopes of getting love back. We are already completely loved by God. We do not need to love to find acceptance and welcome. We are already fully accepted and welcomed by God. We are deeply loved. And if we can believe this to be true, we will see our call is to respond in love to the love we've been given. The mark of membership in the family of God is faith working itself through love. As Jesus said in the Gospel of John, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. We do a horrible job at this. Christians often are not known for being those that love, except for being maybe loving yourself more than others. What a convicting word for us today that others in this world will know we are a follower of Jesus, not because we know all the right answers, not because we know who to vote for, not because we know how to look good in front of others. We are going to be known because of our love for one another. This is the law of God we should grab hold of. This is the meaning of the law that we should celebrate and respond with our lives. Christians are freed from the law as a way to gain access to God, but we're not free from the law as a way to please our God. The law is an expression of God's nature and God's heart, and it shows us what God loves and who God is. The law does not save us, but it's it's something we can celebrate. Our Old Testament reading had these words, and they are the words that we should sing as well. Psalm 119 said, Oh, how I love the law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments, your laws, God, make me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. You know, as I started off this sermon, I said that Paul is teaching us not just theologically, but practically here about what freedom looks like in our day-to-day Christian lives and how we are to use this freedom. And one of the ways we can use the freedom that God has given us is to delight in God's law. The law, to love the law given to us by God to help us live for him. Verse 13 gives us some practical applications to our freedom and how the law helps us. Paul writes, for you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom 
as an opportunity for the flesh. We are not to live for our flesh, for our sinful desires. Christian freedom is a freedom from sin. It is not a freedom to sin. And listen, the works of the flesh, our sinful desires, they promise us things they cannot keep. Do whatever you want with your body. You'll be free. Do whatever you want with your mind and your money and your time, and you will be free. Live this way. It doesn't matter. You will be free. And how often do we go after those things we think are going to bring us freedom, but instead we feel entrapped and enslaved? Jesus himself said in our gospel reading this morning, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Many of us, many of us are enslaved to our pride, to our greed, to our misused sexual desires, to so many things that are harming us deeply. And we need to repent of those ways that we've abused God's good and perfect law and realize he gave us this law to help us live in our freedom. And we are not to use freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but verse 13 says how we are to use our freedom is this way. Through love, serve one another. What a beautiful truth that we are given freedom to serve one another. Paul continues and says the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We do not serve our neighbors in order to get things back from them. We serve them to love them. Because God has called us to. We are to love our neighbors and serve them. And not, as the last verse says, bite and devour and consume one another. This includes doing this in person and online in our disagreements with one another. Brothers and sisters, our neighbor is everyone in this room right now. If this is your church community, if this is your place you call home, then your neighbors are the ones sitting in your pew. And you're called to love and serve them. And I want to thank you that so many of you have taken this call seriously. Thank you for loving and serving those in this community. But our neighbor is also those in the city that look very different than us, that act very different than us, that believe very differently than us. Our calling is to love and serve them with our lives as well. Our neighbor... Is the woman that has been abused or mistreated by powerful men and are hurting deeply by this. Our calling is to serve and to love them and to stand up for them. Our neighbor is the refugees who have come into our country or who are trying to come into our country for freedom. Our calling is to love and to serve them. And what's hard is that some people don't agree with those things. And if you are one that believes we should stand up for the rights of women or stand up for the rights of our refugees and you meet someone that disagrees with you, your calling is to believe what you believe and stand for what you believe in, but your calling also is to love those people that disagree with you. And sometimes that's the hardest thing to do. But we desire our church to be a church that is known who loves and who serves our neighbors. Because of the freedom we have in Christ, we get to respond in love towards one another and serving one another in our city and our world.
Let us pray. Father, we thank you for all that you are and all that you give. And we thank you for the freedom we have to live for you, to love you, and to live and love and serve others in this community and in our city and in our world. May we believe this and may we respond in faith, working itself out in love. Amen.